and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Later, we'll have the third and final installment of my interview with the great Chuck D. But first, the massacre at three massage parlors in and around Atlanta. Eight people were killed, six of them Asian. There's a lot to unpack about this vicious expression of anti-Asian hate. First, a suspect was arrested fairly quickly. His name is Robert Aaron Long, age 21. Surveillance footage shows him entering one of the three massage parlors an hour before the first reports of gunfire. Incredibly, the spokesman for the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office, Captain Jay Baker, told reporters in the aftermath of the killings that Long, the suspect, was having a really bad day. He's no longer a spokesman for the case, but he's kept his job, despite the emergence of his promotion of anti-Asian material just last year. If I lived in Cherokee County, Georgia, I'd be asking myself, is this really the best we can do? But that's another issue. What would drive a young man to allegedly buy a pistol, invade not one but three massage parlors, and leave a trail of death and destruction in his wake? First, the gun. This guy was able to walk into a store, purchase a gun with no questions asked. This is a direct result of America's gun culture and certainly won't be questioned in connection with all this for a while. The guns, the trail of guns, where they're sold, who they're sold to, whether or not there were proper background checks, all of that ends up taking a back seat. People start looking at that after the Klieg lights are turned down, the cameras have left, the reporters have left, and people attempt to go back to their lives. Now, Long reportedly told police his murderous rampage was a result of some sort of sex addiction. Really? Sex addiction? That is an excuse for taking eight lives? The more logical explanation, hate. Hate just makes more sense. And American hate against Asians is certainly nothing new, nor is it limited to a corner of Georgia. Since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, politicians have taken to branding it as the Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, and Kung flu, among other anti-Asian tropes. At first, people might not think this verbal, verbal targeting has any consequence. I submit they are wrong. Taken together, they create a climate that allows hate to flourish and intensify. In cities like San Francisco, Houston, and yes, New York, Asians have been accosted and in some cases assaulted on the street. It's a damn shame that it takes eight lives to make us ask, how do we stop this? And yet, here we are. I believe in order to understand hatred against Asians, we need to go back in American history to a history that very few of us are taught in school. Maybe 1875 would be a good place to start. That was the year the Page Act became American law. It was the first restrictive federal law in this country regarding immigration. Who was it aimed at? Chinese women who were seen as unclean and engaging 
in prostitution. Don't believe me? Look it up. You don't have to go in and, with a, a, a thesaurus or any kind of encyclopedia. Just look up Google the Page Act and see how America demonized Chinese women in 1875. Then ask yourself, when you're done, why wasn't I taught anything about this in school? Now, seven years after the Page Act, President Chester Allen Arthur signed the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. That's right, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. The first time that immigration law in America was used against a specific nationality. That exclusion of an entire nationality lasted until 1943, from 1882 to 1943. A big part of the reason these laws were passed had to do with economics, but they were aided by racism and by white supremacy. The same thing that was visited on black people. And it's interesting, the Page Act was in 1875. Within two years of that time, what gains were made by Reconstruction were rolled back. Accident? Uh, maybe not. Now, other immigrants came to America, believe me. They, too, were subject to harassment. But hate against Asians was particularly virulent. That hate produced two violent riots just in case you think, you know, Black Lives Matter or Antifa are the only people that foment riots in this country. There was the Rock Springs Massacre in Wyoming in 1885 and the Hell's Canyon Massacre in Oregon two years later. In both cases, double-digit numbers of Asians were killed. In terms of the Hell's Canyon Massacre, they were ambushed. And of course, it was over gold. Fast forward to the Second World War and the internment of 120,000 Japanese living in the U.S. Interesting that, again, Asians were seen as a security risk, while Germans, who, by the way, we were fighting at the same time, were not interred during the war. And now, in the 21st century, it appears we've learned very little from the mistakes of the past. I have been very fortunate in my own life that my family encouraged me to explore not just my history, but that of other people of color as well. Eventually, as I moved into adulthood, I began to question why so much history was missing from my formal education. I'm now very firmly convinced that one way to fight against racist hate is to educate young people about past examples of it and its consequences. This is not with an eye to guilt anybody or to enrage anybody. Although, I'll tell you the truth, if you read some of this stuff closely enough, you might in fact become enraged, but that's not gonna accomplish anything. It really is about a fuller and more accurate chronicle of America's history, good and bad, warts and all. It's this type of education that right-wing ideologues are fighting so hard against. They know what it would mean to tell America's real story. It would mean body blows to white supremacy 
and the privilege that comes with it. I think it would narrow the chances that a deluded 21-year-old with a gun would go into three different massage parlors and snuff out eight lives, allegedly. Well, the lives were snuffed out. It's alleged that this was the kid that did it. This ought to be the time that racist targeting and murder is tossed in the garbage can where it belongs. It will also happen when different groups of color put aside their problems with each other and come together as one to reject Asian hate. It's a shame people have to die to focus attention on this. Coming up next, the assault on voting rights and how to fight to win. This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. to know what you think leave a comment on my facebook page or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com glad you're here with us coming up the final part of my conversation with the legendary chuck d but first you know for a very long time and i've said this before in both public and private forums i was one of those people who thought for years that it was impossible for anyone to roll back the hard-won voting rights that people died for back in the 1960s when I was a kid. Yet the historic voter turnout in last year's balloting proved me wrong. Legislatures in 43 states, 43 states, have proposed no less than 250 bills that would restrict, in one way or another, ballot access. That is, making voting more difficult for tens of millions of Americans. Suffice to say, 2020 was their worst nightmare come true, the people that are introducing these bills. COVID-19 ravaged the country and forced states to allow greater flexibility with mail-in, absentee, and other alternatives to risking one's health by showing up at the polls in person. So what are these Republican majority legislatures focusing on? enacting stricter ID requirements, limiting poll hours, closing polling sites in areas where people of color live, narrowing eligibility to vote absentee, every trick they have in the voter suppression handbook. And their rationale? Increasing public confidence in the voting process and rooting out fraud. Ask them to produce evidence and or examples of fraud? They come up empty. That's because there is very little fraud, and there was very little fraud in the 2020 election. It's all about their guy losing the presidency. Rather than telling their constituents the truth, they've come full circle back to trumpeting the same nonsense that created this problem in the first place. Democrats in Congress are looking to strike back against voter suppression. H.R. 1 is their weapon. It's... Uh, actually called the For the People Act. It's already drawn criticism from Republicans, even after passing the House in a party-line vote. 
The punditocracy has already ruled the bill has no chance in the Senate, and with the current rules, they're probably right. However, there's talk among Democrats about blowing up the filibuster to get this bill passed. I don't think that's so bad an idea. Regardless, it's instructive to know, or at least have a synopsis, of the components of the bill. I'll chronicle some of them here, courtesy of a recent article in the Washington Post. H.R. 1 would set a national standard for voter, voter registration and mail-in voting. It would also mandate nonpartisan redistricting commissions in all 50 states. That's very important because what usually happens in the setting of boundary lines, especially after a census, is that districts get gerrymandered. And they get gerrymandered in such a way that Republicans control many of the state legislatures. One of the more controversial elements is a number of big changes in the campaign finance law. One would require super PAC and dark money groups to publicly disclose their donors. I imagine that would draw the ire of those who benefit from such donations. And believe me, there are many. There would also be new ethics rules for public service and a requirement that presidential candidates disclose their tax returns. I'm thinking most people probably know the saga of Donald Trump and his tax returns, but he's not president anymore, thank God. Now, these components are sure to trigger a battle royal between Republicans and Democrats. Don't expect the GOP to utter the words voter suppression, except to say they're not doing it. The other angle of opposition will come from those state legislatures. The states that are looking to limit voter participation will scream like stuck pigs that H.R. 1 infringes on their traditional prerogatives. To an extent, they're right. Election rules and regulations are traditionally the province of state assemblies and senates. They and other conservative advocacy groups are likely to file lawsuits against this bill if it in fact manages to pass. Yet the voter suppression advocates brought this on themselves. They've been screaming bloody murder about fraud for years, way before the 2020 election. They've never had a great deal of evidence, but now they don't think they actually need any. All they have to do is argue that their constituents are worried about it, not that it actually happened. They can also, with straight faces, argue their tactics won't make it harder for people of color to vote. Even though the assault on the 2020 presidential vote was centered on cities like Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Atlanta, cities with large black populations. It's truly a return visit to America after the end of Reconstruction, when blacks were forcibly disenfranchised. There was a time I would have looked at that statement as a bit of hyperbole. No more. Republicans in particular Trumpist Republicans, understand no matter how many votes this guy got, they understand very clearly that their ability to grow their party is extremely limited. Rather than adopt policies that would broaden their base, they'd rather play to that base while shrinking the base of their opposition. Hence, voter suppression based on non-existent claims of fraud. Non-existent claims of fraud. In fact, 
there have been several people who have been convicted of voter fraud, and about half of them have been Republicans, in point of fact. Now, there are people who have been fighting voter suppression since the Supreme Court gutted crucial parts of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. They need to be supported by the communities they are trying to help and empower. Voting rights isn't always an issue that brings heat, like police brutality or health care, but it is important, critically important. I can remember some years ago, we would go out and do voter registration, and the response to our asking people to register and saying to people, you need to come out and vote, was at best, and I'm emphasizing at best, apathetic. People, quite frankly, did not care. Well, we're past that point now. We're at a point in America where if we don't come out and vote, and of course, it was a record turnout last year. So maybe people think I'm just blowing in the wind here, but I know and have lived through enough election cycles to know that we cannot expect a record turnout in 2022 or in 2024 unless people are energized and unless the barriers to people exercising their franchise are taken down. And I mean seriously taken down. The future of generations to come is at stake in all this. Don't ever forget that. When we come back, the concluding part of my conversation with public enemies, Chuck D. This is The Intersection. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Stay with us. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. I gotta admit, I love talking to Chuck D. He's insightful, he's direct, and he absolutely pulls no punches. Here's the third and final part of our conversation. What do you think about the fact that in the wake of Joe Biden's victory, I forgot, it's a 40 odd states across the country are now trying to enact voter suppression laws. Uh, getting rid of early balloting, things that specifically target Blacks and other people of color. What what do people need to do to fight that? Number one, they should teach most white Americans that a hundred years ago, they acted so similar to their <laughs> to their family lines. It's like, it's no, it's no need to act like that. But the fear, paranoia, misinformation, lack of education, have people acting just like they did after Red Summer of 1919 oh, yeah. and 1920 and 1921 when you had a world war and you had a pandemic and you had people that just had animosity uh, at people of color and black people because they felt that they were slipping or their status was slipping a little bit. Mm. And um, that's that, not very united about any states. But it's, I don't think, I think in this century, that it hasn't really been a united states of America. It's been a polarized 
Maybe it should be called the PSA, the polar polarized, polarized states, of states of America. <laughs> yeah, point. yeah, the PSAs, right? Yeah. So uh, I think that people feel that they're losing something. Have kind of fell into this propaganda and this this growing fascism. You know, even if somebody reads in history, and I tell people read books because and keep a book because it stays frozen mm-hmm. on your time and in your hand. They can't make it vanish and disappear. You know, <laughs> you can, oh, your gadget, reading through your gadget, if you have the power, whatever you were reading, that's, that's done. Or you don't know, especially you going into the internet and a server might flip what you read yesterday and it'll be indifferent tomorrow. You don't know if it's changed up, switched around, it's three-card money, Bob. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying is that uh, to, to keep some kind of guide with you or books with you, they freeze the moment and then you have the time, real time, human time, to comprehend and process whatever that is for you to go forward in, in, in your existence. And they work well in the future. You have to be able to make comparisons and analogies. I mean that that's your that's that that's to me that's that's your ultimate GPS is to figure <laughs> out how you're gonna walk it in the future and you're gonna need something that won't dissipate. Good you know, you're gonna need something that won't vanish. Um and I think that the growing generations are in trouble. Uh, especially zero to 25, because there's a lot of basic things if they get stripped or when the grid goes down, they're lost. Mm. I mean, I'm lost a little bit, like born in 1960, Mark. I'm lost um, a little bit because I, I don't know how to get that egg out of that chicken. <laughs> I don't know how, you know, I mean. I know. All right, I know go exactly to that cow and get that milk. You know what I'm saying? Uh Mm-hmm. Or go to that go to that creek and boil that water before you drink it. So there's there's things in the basics that are, are being lost right now that probably ain't coming back. And there's a lot of dependency to thinking that, you know, that a gadget might might save us, you know, through thick and thin. And um that's not true either. So yeah, that, that yeah, the man. blends, the blends of teaching and education, and so that's why you gotta have. You know, people talk about like police reform, Mark. How about educational reform? Number one, educational reform. I was in Chile and I saw 900,000 people in Santiago march through Santiago. Santiago, this is about eight years ago for education reform. Important point. It doesn't happen here, that's for sure. Yeah, police reform means a whole bunch of different things. Number one, the thing that go against that grain is that every county has its own jurisdiction. Yeah. yeah. So every county, the watchdogs of that county and the law are, are the police force. So they're scattered all over the place. Although they come together as the FOP, if you commit a crime against one police person somewhere else, you best of the least, they're all going to be wired up. They're going to posse up then. So that's why even the Nation of Islam, they at least if a person whether they agree with them or did not agree with them or whatever, they, they felt that beyond all the religion 
aspects of it, what they always were clear about is like wherever country that you're in, or even in the United States, do your best to obey that law. Yeah. And if you want to go against that law and fight that power, then you got to know that law. And you use that law to fight the law. Absolutely. You know, yeah, and not get do beat that. down by the law. And then expect that they'll come with the double whammy because you know the law. <laughs> and once you know the law, <laughs> then the double whammy is like, nigga, all right, then, then how about this? You know, say, but at least know the law, fight the law, you know, buy by the law, but to fight the law is to know the law. And there's a lot of other things that you got to know about the place that you at. Know who you are. Number one, if you don't know who you are, then how are you going to know who you are, what's successful, and what to do, and how you're looked upon? Everything so flows some from of that. The, everything flows from that. So, and, and no matter where you go in the world. I mean, yeah, I might say fight the power. Then I'm doing a song in Jakarta, Indonesia, and on the walls, before you even get in the country, they say, you know, the promoter says, well, listen, in this country, you can do the song. They know your song. You can't talk to the audience like that. You, we don't want you talking to the audience. Mm -hmm. Do your song, take your ass, go on back. <laughs> so, so I know from my visits to 116 countries, Mark, that I have to abide by the law for wherever I go. I do my song. Sometimes I have the leverage to, to go and, and talk the dynamic past that. Know where you're going. Know who you are. One thing I know, Mark, for sure. I, if I get ar arrested and put in the jail in another country, I know ain't nobody in the United States come to get my ass. <laughs> and here's another thing that shows how much power we have as a people in 2021. If my ass gets locked up inside the United States, nobody could get my ass out. Yeah. Nobody black. Yeah. Very true. That Very tells true. you, right? Yeah. That tells absolutely. you, right? Listen, now, I mean, if, we, if, mm -hmm. if we had a collective, if we had a, a powerful collective, we can always say, well, amnesty. Or we could say, well, that person that your guys locked up in, and you know, 1969, that person, you know, based on the system, based on the, the COINTELPRO, that's a political prisoner. Yeah. yeah. Based on the, 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 the you know, the, the, the shadow of doubt, you got to look at Mamiya Abu-Jamal's case a little differently you got to look at Asada Shakur's case a little differently because yeah. the dynamics of who was dealing with what then, that was straight out warfare, what was going on. And you might have pinned something, you, you known to pin something on somebody and then not be true, just based on DNA and all that stuff going on. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. but we don't have, we don't have the, now we're on the body, the bandwidth that, because the biggest difference, and I'll leave on this note, Mark, the biggest difference when I was a 26-year-old listening to you on the radio every day to give me that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding and insight, listening in my car to you, WLIB, you know, forming how I should truncate everything I'm hearing and processing it into a rap record or a rap career. The biggest difference between 1986, 87, 88, 89, when we did Fight the Power, and 20. 21 is that people that were in that mix then a lot of them are not here yes and true. a lot have been born 
after that who are now 30, 35 years old, and they're in the middle of that mix. Yeah. So we can't say things like, man, we went through this before. We got to be careful how we say we. Yeah, because they don't know. They really they don't, know. don't know. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of my podcast. The executive producer of The Intersection is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.